clarity. I thought I made these seven years and these vows pretty easy for Arash. <laughs> but that's probably a little biased. But also, you know, no other boyfriend had ever made it five on the list, so I married him, at least he was fifth. <laughs> so that's a good thing. Everybody thinks number five is so bad. Number five is not bad. So anyway, had to get those in, you know. Um, <clears throat> but tonight I wanted to talk about, <clears throat> in August, Desi had done a fantastic series for us in our big group um, called Understanding the Bible, in which we learned that, you know, in addition to prayer and the Holy Spirit, you know, illuminating the word to us um, in prayer time and our own personal devotion time with him, there's several tools and uh, resources available to us um, to interpret scripture and help us understand um, and help us grow in our understanding of the word of God so that we can live it out, you know, as he intends um, for his church. So now in the month of September, um, in our small groups, we've begun a series lesson called Bible and Culture. And I know that some of our groups um, it's only, what week are we in, the second week of August or so? Some of our groups haven't um, met yet and had their first lesson, but that's okay. You know, this will just be a little kickoff. But we've started this series called Bible and Culture, um, and the first lesson is titled, Haven't You Read the Scriptures? Well, when something good, when you encounter something good in just what it is, you don't change it. And so I like that title for my sermon tonight. I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. So I'm calling it, Haven't You Read the Scriptures? Um, and we're going, to, uh, uh, it, we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the small group lesson and kind of what this series is going to cover in the next few uh, uh, lessons. But um, it's, not going to be, you're, it's not going to be a repeat of your small group lesson. So don't... Don't worry about that. But one of the focuses of the lesson um, is to consider the cultural truths that we each have, but in light of scriptures. Um, and what I mean by culture is the customs, this is just right out of the dictionary, culture is the customs, the arts, the social institutions and achievements of a particular nation, people, or other social group. So, Culture, when we say culture, it means a lot of things. Um, and because our cultural practices are created from our cultural beliefs, um, our beliefs are formed from all sorts of influences. It can be church culture, like a pastor or minister. It can be uh, the culture of our families. It can be the culture of our friends. Um, from literature, from any experience in our life, creates these cultural beliefs. And then we internalize these beliefs as truth. It's what becomes truth to us. And so when we encounter the word of God and he challenges some of these truths um, that perhaps we've held for a very long time, generation after generation, hand-me-downs. So when we encounter uh, the word of God and, and he challenges some of these truths with his truth, which is the word, it's imperative that we know the scriptures, we're familiar with the scriptures, 
in that we can then internalize God's truth that trumps our own truth, kind of what Arash was talking about a little bit tonight. For example, in one group uh, that I was in this week, we discussed some of the sayings, cultural sayings, that most of us have, have heard before. Probably most of us have heard a couple of these. And these are cultural sayings that um, are, are derived from scripture or inspired by scripture, but actually may not be in scripture. Or if, if the scripture's there, it's interpreted incorrectly. Um, so some of those that we talked about in this particular group was, God helps those who helps themselves. That seems very American dreamish. Um, cleanliness is close to godliness. I thought to myself, if that's true, I mean, didn't Jesus walk around with like this much mud stuck to the bottom of his foot? Because cleanliness wasn't the same back then as our sanitized nation. So we talked about some of those. There's so many more. And I'm sure in some of your small groups, some of these will come up. Um, but again, these have become cultural beliefs and truths and sayings that all of us use um, or, or have said to someone or someone has had said to you. And so what I'd like to do tonight is um, take what we've just learned in big group and use it to um, look at a passage of scripture that has been inspired by this small group series lesson. So I'd like to look at another one of these cultural sayings that we say that's supposedly derived from scripture. Can I have my, side, my slide, please? It's the, yes, there we go. There it is. God won't give you more than you can handle. First meme, seven, verses 77. Anybody feel like that when somebody tells you that? Oh, this is the perfect chance. You look like you're handling a lot, but God won't give you more than you can handle. I think it looks like he's getting crushed by what God's given him to handle. So that's one of these cultural sayings um, that I'm sure a lot of us have used or have had said to you, ministers, counselors, family, friends, uh, mean it as a form of comfort for someone who's suffering and who's going through a lot. Um, I mean, I'm, I've used it before. I've had it said to me, you know, you share something with someone, well, honey, God's not gonna give you more than you can handle. It's supposed to bring comfort. By using the tools that we were exposed to in big group, um, I would like to walk us through a passage in scripture where this statement comes from. And debunk it. We'll do a communal debunking. Um, and then what I'd like to do is leave us uh, with a real word of encouragement that is found in scripture and that's theologically uh, aligns with the God of the scriptures and how he's revealed himself to his creation. So I want to talk about first, I was going to go to the scripture, but first of all, let's just talk a little bit about what is meant by this saying. If the statement's kind of confusing in a couple of ways. Um, what do we mean by handle? You know, God won't give you more than you can handle. Does that mean what I can handle is different than what someone else can handle? Does it mean if I can't handle something, someone else could handle it better? You know, 
have, have you ever said this before to someone? And somebody might say back to you, well, what do you mean by that? Because um, that would be difficult to answer. I've actually never had someone ask me, well, what do you mean by that? Because then I would have been like, I, we just say it. You, it's just something we say. You're not supposed to ask what it means. It's just supposed to, you're supposed to say thank you. So it's, you know, it's, it is kind of confusing. I don't even really get it. Um, because if you've ever had it said to you, in your head you're probably thinking, well, well we're already past that point. It, it is too much to handle. So, I mean, we're kind of past that point. I, I don't want to be strong if this is what it means to be strong. Make me weak, Lord. Just make me weak. You know, um, almost seems like a punishment. You know, I don't want to be the strong saint then. You know, so it kind of, it doesn't bring the comfort it's intended to. But people do use it, and I have, too, with good intentions, of course. A lot of times, suffering is hard to watch some, it's hard to watch someone go through something hard. And sometimes we just don't know what to say. And so we, we defer to these cultural sayings that just, they're, yes, they don't make sense. Um, so I would argue that this statement does more harm than anything else, and it's quite confusing to a person. Many sufferers feel their sufferings beyond what they can bear. For these individuals, hearing the message, God won't give you more than you can handle, might communicate that they're not good enough, or that something's wrong with their faith, which just adds to the suffering, just piling it up. Um, and it can also create a self-focused and a self-reliant way of thinking, which is just antithetical anti to, to, to scripture. Um, the sufferer may feel that they aren't trying hard enough, or they aren't reading their Bibles enough, or you aren't praying enough hours in the day, and that's why you're going through this. Um, and rather than feeling comforted, you might feel guilt or shame um, and doubt based on this misunderstanding of the scripture we're going to look at here in just a minute. So this unintended consequence from this statement is just biblically unsound and it's just theologically incorrect. And that's exactly the opposite of what scripture teaches us about God in his part participation with his creation. And how do we know that? Because of passages of scripture like Russ preached this morning, and I was thinking you know, through his whole sermon, I thought, oh goodness, it just has you know, little fingerprints all over where I'm going tonight. Um, that all answers, you know, his message this morning, all answers are found in Jesus Christ, not within ourselves in our infinite minds. Um, and if we were our only hope, you know, as Paul said, we would be most miserable. So we heard that this morning. So where does this saying come from? Let's go to the scripture. It comes from the passage in 1 Corinthians 10 and 13. And I'm going to read this verse in the NLT and then again in the message, just because one of the things Desi talked about was using several translations. Um, for uh, the purpose of your study. So we'll use a few, well, a couple. So the NLT reads, 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. So there it is right there, where we get that saying. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. 
So I like that last part of that verse right there, when you are tempted, he will show you a way out that you can endure. I like how that was stated here in the NLT. But if we go to another translation for understanding, I'll turn to the message. No test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. So I liked how the message brought that out. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit. He'll always be there to help you come through it. Now we're going to do some of the Greek work. Um, Desi had talked about things like uh, dictionary lexicons, um, commentaries, you know, resources that we can use to understand the biblical, the context in which the biblical passages were um, written. And so now that we have this passage, um, since we're in the New Testament, we're going to be reading from the Greek text. So in order to discern the meaning of a Greek word, I turn to a lexicon. Uh, and I use the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, or BDAG, which is um, the standard, I guess, for this type of study. And uh, we're defining this term temptation in the passage. Um, in the Greek, I think it's parasmas, uh, but it's the Greek word for temptation. And it has this broad semantic range. So there's this broad range of meaning um, which is typical with Greek words. And according to the lexicon, it can refer to a temptation to sin and the suffering from sin, or attesting a trial or kind of any general type of suffering that life brings. So the Greek word here used for temptation can be used to speak of both suffering from sin and suffering. And that's where this cultural statement comes from. But this Greek word for temptation has such a, a broad range of meaning that it can mean the definition sin, and it can also mean the testing or the in trials, but it can't mean both. Um, so there's something else that we learned about that helps us to determine which meaning is truer to the author's intent, in this case, Paul, and what he really meant by the word temptation. And that other thing is context. Context. <laughs> uh, Desi spoke about that for uh, probably, I think it was the third week, maybe it was the first, one of the weeks. Um, the specific meaning an author intends to communicate when using a word is determined uh, by context. Um, let me see, I feel like, there we go. Um, so in the context of this passage, uh, we can't claim that Paul meant to reference both temptation to sin and to trials and suffering simultaneously. In fact, if we attempt to interpret this verse as though Paul had intended both of those meanings, um, we commit what's called exegetical fallacy. Did you talk about that? Exegetical fallacy, which is the fallacy of reading every possible meaning you know, into a, a single use of a word. So what that means is it just confuse, it confuses, it muddles what is, uh, what the meaning and what's intended. So we don't want to do that. So in order that we determine the correct, you know, authorial intent here, we turn to the context of the passage by reading a few verses before verse 13, which is what we're looking at tonight, and maybe a couple uh, 
scriptures um, following verse 13. So I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, verses 1 through 14 for context. This is the NLT. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food. All of them drank the spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as a warning to us, so that we would not crave evil things as they did, or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble, as, as some of them did, and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. So my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. I think I have verse 15 up here and I didn't give it to you, so that's okay. You are reasonable people. Decide for yourselves what I am saying is true. I think what Paul was really saying was there was, haven't you read the scriptures? Decide for yourselves what I'm saying is true. Well, he just referenced a passage uh, in Scripture to bring them to the conclusion he wants to bring them to. So again, this whole notion of haven't you read the Scriptures as in, uh, you know, they need to be familiar to us. We need to know them. Um, so in general, if we're talking about context, the greater context, here is the book of Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is dealing with problems in the church at Corinth. And chapters 10 and 11, in which our main text lies, Paul is admonishing the church here to learn from the lessons of God's people, Israel. He cites the story of the exodus that occurred and how even though God brought them safely through um, that and provided nourishment for them, Israel displeased, Israel angered God um, with their idolatry and unfaithfulness to him. So Paul here is warning the Corinthians, God's people now, against committing the same sins that Israel had against God. Verse 6 addresses those who desire or crave evil. Verse 7, Paul addresses the worship of idolaters. Verse 8 identified this idolatry specifically as sexual immorality. The following verses continue to address sin. These are sin. As we um, read of the putting Christ to the test in verse 9 and then the grumbling that occurred in verse 10. Verse 12 gives the exhortation. If you think you're standing strong, 
Be careful not to fall. Into what? Sin. So Paul is addressing sin in the greater context of the verse that we are looking at tonight. So if we use the context of the chapter to help us determine the meaning of verse 13, the text leads us to conclude that Paul intended the meaning of the word temptation to mean temptation to sin, since the surrounding verses and chapters are addressing just that. And we can rule out the other potential meanings. That's how, you know, we're just applying August into September. That's what we're doing, August into September. Um, so this other potential meaning, which was this general statement of trials and suffering that life in itself brings, we live in a broken world, we will face suffering and trials, even as God's people. Um, so this, this uh, verse 13, the scripture we're looking at tonight, is actually not about talking about how much suffering a person can or can't handle. Um, and that's how we can debunk these cultural statements. Isn't that fun? Anybody find that satisfying? I do. So then what is 1 Corinthians 10 and 13 uh, really mean? You know, how, what can we pull from that? Paul uh, wrote it for the Corinthian church, uh, God's people then. Well, we're God's people now. So let's draw what we can from that and what Paul intended for his readers um, and the church. What Paul is telling us in this passage is that no one will be tempted to sin beyond what one is able to bear or to stand, as the NLT said. Because he says, with each temptation, God makes a way to escape from it. Also something Russ touched on this morning in his morning uh, sermon. While God doesn't keep us from temptation, and we know this because First of all, Paul, in the verses we read, says uh, that we are all tempted alike. We don't face things that anybody else hasn't faced in temptation. And we know that the scripture says Jesus was tempted. So God doesn't keep us from temptation, or temptation from us, I should say. Um, but Paul does say here that with each temptation, God made a way of escape from it and from the consequences of temptations that lead to sin. Amen? And I think that's the encouraging word. Uh, that word would be encouraging to me. Whereas God can't give you more than you can handle, you're like, we're way past that. Like, you know? So this is an encouraging word. There is always, a, God has made a way out, a, an escape from the consequences that sin can uh, wreak, wreak havoc in our life. God's grace is greater than our sin, and he's faithful to us every time. In another of Paul's writings, Paul admonishes that God's grace never runs out. But he also says, just because that's true, it's not licensed for us to sin. Um, but should we find ourselves tempted, he'll be faithful to make a way of escape for us every time. And I think that's good news. Amen. So some discussion, and I was mentioning the small group earlier I had been a part of this week, and some of our discussion in that small group I participated in was how change, you know, changing these cultural beliefs and practices from them 
can be an, and is oftentimes slow. That process of change is slow because those cultural things that have shaped us growing up, like I've already mentioned, whether it be from family, uh, regionally, you know, culturally, societal, religious, you know, church uh, culture, they're so deeply embedded in us um, that when we're confronted by a challenge by the truth of the word of God, it's a process. And when I have the word process here in my notes, there's one, two, three, four, five, six S's that I typed before I stopped. Because it's a process. It's a process of change. Um, you know, and a better and more scriptural word for that is that it's a, the process of transformation. It can be slow. And so, but it's worth it because our process is to be reflective more of God's word and to be more like him, amen? So don't forsake the process. The process is your friend. Should we make a chant? Don't forsake the process. The process is your friend. <laughs> Just say that in the mirror every morning when you wake up. Um, so albeit slow, it's not an impossible you know, ship to turn um, because scripture tells us all things in Christ, for in, in Christ all things are possible. And so many of us here tonight are living proof of that. You just sit around and talk to one another and things, situations, uh, uh, things that have happened, you talk to someone and you're like, wow, they got through that. God brought them through that. God's faithful to us. So rather than perpetuating the saying that's not scriptural after all, let's rewrite it with something tonight. Um, with something inspired from another uh, Pauline passage here in the scripture. So rather than using 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, I think a better passage to convey God's relationship to our suffering is 2 Corinthians 12, verse, uh, verses 7 through 10. And that reads, So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So out with the old and with the new. Um, this passage reminds us what God will do for us in our suffering. So let's use this to encourage each other with maybe a statement, and it's not, you know, mind-blowing. It's just a more theologically correct statement here. Something like, God will give you all the grace you need for any situation you face. Um, that's more true. That's something I think I could stand behind. And that's something I think would bring me comfort if somebody were to say that. Um, because it's his promise to his children, and I just think it's such a relief that we are not required to handle uh, most of the time what we think we need to, uh, but we're not re required to handle everything. 
Um, and I think that that is such a great relief. Um, so this new, uh, new statement brings actual comfort, something like that, could bring actual comfort um, because it's biblically sound. And it better reflects those theological truths that that's, Paul wants to come through in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, and 10, and other passages like it. No matter how much suffering people face and how deeply that we hurt because of that suffering, we know that, that the truth, that God's grace, and not in their own strength, but out of God's grace, that will be sufficient for us in all of our needs. This statement uh, also focuses on God's abilities and not ours. When we talk about God giving you more than you can handle, that really focuses on our ability and our resources, which by the time you're really going through something, they're pretty much worn thin, they're gone. And um, so a statement that focuses on God's grace rather than our own strength, um, it it's, does not seem as hopeless when we don't focus on our own abilities and resources. It brings that hope. It gives kind of that sigh of relief that I don't have to handle all this. God's got it, and he will be faithful in it. Um, you know, also this morning, Russ mentioned about we weren't created to die. Um, and I had in my notes here tonight that, you know, we weren't created to suffer, so why would God place it on us to handle it? Same, same uh, line of thought there. God has always made a way to be sufficient for us um, through uh, him. And in statements like these, God gets the glory rather than ourselves. So when we realize how dependent we are on God to get through these tests and trials, um, I came across uh, in my studies this uh, summary of Paul's perspective on suffering, uh, and I really liked it, so I'm going to read it to you, and this is going to be my closing. Um, I found the summary that said, it was in it was. His, Paul, speaking of Paul, it was his inability to endure the suffering he faced that led Paul to a greater knowledge and experience of God's provision, comfort, and deliverance. And that's, how I, that's the note I want to end us on tonight, that we may all see ourselves like that, like Paul did, how he saw himself, and come to that same conclusion. Amen? So if you would stand with me, let's just make the, oh, okay, and we have Pastor Stephen coming up. I want to tie a nice little bow, because there is a connection, whether they intended it or not, between Brother Arash's message to us and Sister Meg's very good application of August. Um, by the way, I don't know if, Meg, you knew this, but three times I was teaching in Ghana and Nigeria Corinthian correspondence. So you did your homework correctly, because I am intimately familiar with Paul's two letters, because that is what I taught. Here's the bow. We, because we're broken, are constantly looking 
as Russ pointed out to us this morning, for a God that we can see. We are looking for a material being, a material thing that we can worship. And the reason is, is in our brokenness, we desire to be in control. Okay, we desire to be in control. Paul is dealing with the Corinthian church about all kinds of behavior. That if you were to boil the behavior down, it is about them being puffed up, lifted up, and trying to be in control. And the results is idolatrous behavior. They are not loving the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul, and with all their strength. Some are running after prostitutes. Some are sleeping with their father's wives. Others are treating their brothers and sisters inhospitably as they celebrate the Lord's Supper. Others are being extremely ascetic, and others are worshiping in the fertility cults of Corinth. The sin that we are tempted is not the point. It's a result of our idolatry. And verse number 14, Paul puts it, so, every time you see in a translation, so, there's a summary going on there. So, he says, flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. The message for us to realize is that if we will love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, that God is actively providing for us ways of escape from the temptation of our flesh to be idolatrous. If we're loving him with everything we have, we should not expect to avoid temptation. We should expect him to be present, partnering with us, giving us direction, guiding our steps as we turn from our broken nature's way of serving that which we can see and control to follow a God we cannot see and cannot control but who controls everything. And as you live that life, that is the miraculous life of a disciple because you will see God do amazing things, not according to your will, but according to his. So disciples to leaders, how many of you are so glad that God made a way of escape? It's not a way of escape from your suffering. It's a way of escape from your idolatry. It's not a way of escape from troubles and trials. Instead, the answer, Sister Meg, unfortunately for me, is right there in the King James Version. His grace is sufficient. That's the answer. That's the takeaway for us tonight. When we face troubles and we, we face things that are too big for us, God says to us, no, 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 you need to understand my grace is sufficient. For where sin doth abound, what does the scripture say? Grace doth abound much more abound. So whether you're dealing with your sin or you're dealing with the trials and the problems of life that come from a broken world, either way, his grace is sufficient for us. It will never fail us. Can we love him together and thank him for that? Oh, Jesus, I thank you for your word. 
God, I thank you for the truths that are found in your word. Help us, Lord, to lay aside our cultural preconceptions and our ideas that we build into our mind. Oh, God, help us, Lord, to be faithful to the truth of your word. Let it be made plain to us. Thank you for the word that we've received today. God, the encouragement this morning that those big answers, can I find you, God, and can I be made right with you, God, and will I live again once death has come to me? It's answered in the person of Jesus Christ. The revelation of the word made flesh and God you through that cross have given us grace grace that is sufficient for every trial we face and grace that will make a way Lord that we can turn from our sin thank you for your love thank you for your mercy thank you Lord for your love oh I praise you and I worship you Jesus hallelujah 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 praise the name of Jesus praise the name of Jesus hallelujah 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 Praise.